This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the U.S. Naval Academy. Admiral Stockdale's legacy is broad. He made a difference in so many different places. Those of you listening to this podcast may no doubt have heard about the Stockdale Center at the Naval Academy, but wait, there are other Stockdale Centers. My guest is Professor and Admiral James B. Stockdale, Chair in Professional Military Ethics at the Naval War College in Rhode Island. She holds a PhD in philosophy from Temple University and specializes in military ethics, just war theory, and philosophy of law and applied ethics. She is the author of On Obedience, Contrasting Philosophies for Military, Community, and Citizenry. And Achilles goes asymmetrical, the warrior, military ethics, and contemporary warfare. She is a member and serves on the board of directors of the Military Writers Guild. Welcome, Dr. Pauline Shanks-Curran to Radio Stockdale. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, you certainly are someone who knows all about this subject matter from books and writings and all this kind of stuff. Let's jump into this. This is all about obedience. And let me kind of throw out the big first question, because I think a lot of people think they know what it is, but what is obedience? Uh, Well, first of all, it's not the same as compliance. And in my book, I define it as the intentional and voluntary carrying out of orders or commands given by a commander or other authority figure who represents uh, legitimate political authority in action. So that's the basic definition. Well, we can clearly unpack that. You know, I'll ask questions like, what does it mean to be a legitimate authority? Before I get there, is obedience a virtue or a good thing? As we say at the War College, it depends. So uh, my argument is that only a certain kind of obedience, uh, that is within the bounds of military professionalism and consistent with the military function and community of practice that's chosen through deliberation and acted upon for good reasons is a virtue. So not everything that we think of as obedience, even my definition, which is different than compliance, even obedience itself isn't necessarily a virtue. It it has to be consistent with certain norms and moral commitments of military or other communities of practice. So, so I heard you say the word compliance. How can you compare and contrast that with obedience? So compliance is just doing something because of external factors, because you're afraid of getting into trouble, because someone's going to punish you if you don't, because of the fear of eternal uh, damnation, depending on who the external factor is, because you're afraid of your mother. Compliance is just is just doing something that someone else wants you to do. The person may not be a legitimate authority, and you may not have good reasons for we're doing that thing. It's it's just to avoid some kind of external sanction. So for compliance, you don't necessarily have to believe in what you're doing. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, you don't have to believe in it. You don't have to have any good reasons. Uh, you know, in, in his book, The Things We Carried, 
Tim O'Brien talks about the reasons why he went to Vietnam, why he chose not to escape to Canada and be a draft dodger. And he basically says he, he was a, he was afraid. Um, and it was sort of the path going to Vietnam was the path of least resistance. It wasn't that he wanted to go to Vietnam. He had lots of good reasons not to go to Vietnam. He'd really thought about it. But in the end, he was just really afraid of, of shame. Of, of being embarrassed if he didn't go. So it wasn't that he thought it was the right thing to do. It wasn't that he thought the American government was a legitimate authority in this question. He he was just afraid. And it was the path of least resistance. In the book, I call that passive obedience. It's not real. And I say it's not really obedience. That's compliance. Well, let me ask you this, because I've heard you say legitimate authority. What do you, how do you describe legitimate authority? And I know we can get into some pretty thorny issues as we talk about that. Sure. I think, you know, in the book, I talk about that we, that obedience is something that happens within a community of practice. And that's Alistair McIntyre's term. He wrote a book called After Virtue. And he says community of practices are communities that are informed by a common identity, history, uh, shared commitments, both moral and, and non-moral. Um, so the United States military is a community of practice. Uh, the United States is another political community of practice. You're, you know, if you belong to a religious community, that might be a community of practice. So communities of practice have um, individuals or groups that they recognize as holding legitimate authority. So for the United States, the legitimate authority is the president of the United States, the Congress, and, you know, the Supreme Court, let's say. Um, in my family, I am the legitimate authority because I'm the head of the household. Um, right. in, in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is considered the legitimate authority for that community of practice. Well, okay, so let me break that down a little bit. At home, you don't have a constitution. At least I don't think you do. Uh, <laughs> but I think people know who the boss is. Right. Um, you know, in the in in our context of the American military. What is that legitimate authority? You know, when I was 17 years old, I raised my hand and and took an oath to the Constitution, but the Constitution doesn't speak. Uh, the Constitution doesn't speak, but it has designated people, people who are designated, presumably, to speak for it. So in the military, I think we usually think of legitimate authority as anyone who's in your chain of command. And of course, this is different for officers, um, commission officers. And, and enlisted people, right? But generally, it's someone who has been appointed in some kind of legal fashion above you who is in good standing in that community of practice um, and that you recognize. And other, it's not just that you recognize, but other people would say, yeah, Michael, that per- you should take orders from that person or you should do what that person says. They are your, you know, they are your commanding officer. They have legitimate authority over you. So this is a it's not just an individual judgment. It's a communal judgment within the, the community of practice tells you who who the legitimate authority is within that community of practice. There's usually agreement or some kind of process by which that happens. Although I would argue for the military, the Constitution is a legitimate authority as well. It's just more complicated because, as you said, the you know who who speaks for the Constitution is a is a tricky issue, right? It, no, that's that's a very good point. And, and frankly, so yeah, I'm hearing you say that obedience is a group thing. It's not an individual thing. An individual can be obedient, but it's to the group's norms and and who the group points out as 
as leadership a legitimate authority, right? Well, yeah, and it's, it, obedience itself, right, isn't just you. Like someone has to give you an order, right? There has to be some kind of command. Obedience only makes sense in the context of some kind of command or instruction. So right there, there's two people involved. And usually there's a broader community of practice that that has norms and traditions and histories and identity around who's legitimate authority, what kinds of things are acceptable, especially if obedience is going to be a virtue, right? So there, there are things that I might tell my son to do that as part of a, a parenting community of practice, if I told him to say, kill his brother, like, I think he'd look at me and go, no, I don't think so. That's not, that's not part of our family community of practice, right? There's usually some kind of consensus or some kind of procedure around how we decide, you know, whether the person's a legitimate authority and whether what they're asking us to do is a good thing to do, right? Is something that's within, you know, our communal identity and norms and, and commitments. All right. So let me stay with your analogy here. Let's say mom tells her, your son, to go and clean up his room. Can he point to the broader community to say that, you know, Jimmy doesn't have to clean this, clean up his room and he's in the community? Yeah. And I, I, what I would say there is that Jenny, you know, exists in a different community of practice that is a different family, right? And each of our families is a discrete community of practice. And we, within certain limitations make our own rules, right? I can't, you know, command my son to kill his brother. If I did that, then he would be justified in looking around to the other similar communities of practice and saying, yeah, I, I don't know. Is that is that really a thing? And there's a broader community of practice within which our family exists. Um, and, and we owe obedience to the, the laws of Rhode Island and the United States and, and so on. So we have to ask what community of practice um, is the relevant unit and what happens when you have conflicts uh, between those, as I, I talk about in the book. Yeah, well, let's let's jump on that a little bit. And we can talk Milai, we can talk, uh, uh, you know, a lot of circumstances, a lot of situations where you really question not necessarily the legitimate authority, but the but but the order. But what about you know, shuttling between different communities. There's the Watata case out of Fort Lewis where he went to Afghanistan, but he did not want to go to Iraq. Can you, can you differentiate that a little bit? Yeah. So, so he, uh, um, Aaron Watata, who he was in, in the army exists within a community practice of, of the army as well as the U.S. military. Um, and that, community itself also exists within the larger community of the United United States of America, right? Which, you know, includes the Department of Defense, but also includes all, all of the citizens. So within he, the he works mil- for us, right? Right. So within the military community, he had been told to deploy to Iraq. And his response is, I believe uh, that, and he's appealing to the American citizens here to that larger community practice, as well as to the other members of the military profession. He says, I believe Iraq to be an unjust war. Um, and there was disagreement even when the war was launched within the military and within the broader political community about whether or not 
It was a just war. And he said, I will be happy to go back to Afghanistan, which he viewed as a just war. But he he tried to engage in what we call selective conscientious objection. He tried to say, I'll go to this war, but I won't uh, go to to a, a different war that he considered to be unjust. So there you have a really interesting problem because you have sort of one community of practice or one part of the community of practice that's making a judgment. He ought to go to Iraq. He ought to be deployed. U.S. Uh, soldiers, members of the military at that time, don't have the right to decide which wars they're going to deploy to, right? They're told uh, to go. We don't have a provision for selective conscientious objection legally. But then there's sort of this broader moral and perhaps legal issue if the war in Iraq was an unjust war. Um, and, and so you have a conflict here between two communities of practice, and he's trying to appeal to both of them in a way, right? But you, you have a conflict there, and, and it's interesting to see how that conflict was, was resolved or not resolved. Well, let's, let's put it in the naval context a little bit, uh, more recent, and that's the USS Theodore Roosevelt. You know, can you, is, is that a similar case with, uh, Captain Crozier? Um, it's similar to some degree. Uh, Captain Crozier, as people may or may not remember, had COVID uh, spreading throughout his ship. And he sent a letter, evidently not through proper channels, but he sent a letter that was, I, I would I would say that the letter was an appeal to his community of practice, not just the chain of command, but other peers within the Navy, trying to make his case about why he you know, he he wanted to deal with this in a particular way, basically, you know, take all the sailors off the ship and deal with COVID and, and not and not and not deploy. And he was um, being given uh, orders to do so. But he, he tried to appeal to his peers, to his community practice. This letter was uh, leaked to the press. It's not clear even today who leaked it. But it shows up in the press. And then there's a resulting, uh, as we say, kerfuffle between uh, Crozier and then Secretary of the Navy, Thomas Mosley and the President Trump got involved. And, and so it was a whole thing because there was this disagreement. That's more of a disagreement sort of within the community of practice. And then it gets sort of exposed or broadcast to the larger community of practice uh, through the media. But even before that happened, Crozier was saying, I want to not obey this order and here are my reasons why. And I have good reasons. And he was appealing to the other members of the profession to try to make his case, right? And not just make his case like, I don't feel like deploying, but I have good reasons that are grounded in our shared principles and norms within the community, like caring for his soldiers, like his role as the ship's captain, like the, what the results of, of not containing COVID on his ship could be operationally. So there are all kinds of reasons internal to the military profession that he's appealing to. He's not just saying, well, you know, I have a hair appointment on Tuesday and I just don't feel like going, right? He's, he's making an argument in terms of, of shared ideas and commitments within the military profession. That's a tough situation. Uh, and then again, I know you have a quote from, uh, General Milley, before he became uh, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, I mean, his, he's basically saying, you can disobey, but you better be right. Is that correct? 
Yeah. So Millie wrote an article quite a while ago in which he talks about something called disciplined disobedience. And, and he says that, that you can disobey. You have to make your reasons clear and you have to be right. And if you're not right, you have to be willing to suffer the consequences, suffer whatever punishment that the community or whoever decides, um, as, as, as a result of your disobedience. The same thing is true with civil disobedience, right? Mm-hmm. When you, when you mm-hmm. break the law, um, you're trying to uh, appeal to your community, but you can still be thrown in jail, right? Um, but for Millie within the military, he thought you should only do this if you really think you're right and you're willing to suffer the consequences. And as we talked about earlier, perhaps you might be right, but that, that uh, correct decision might be determined 10, 20 years later, and you've got to be able to stand to that. Yeah, and you only, and the problem is that as individuals, we often will make judgments and sometimes they're wrong, which is why you should sort of first vet your decision or test your decision against the community of practice. Now, the community of practice might still be wrong, but if you're appealing to the values of that community, it's more likely that you're right because there are people all the time who, who are, who are disobedient or do things like, like, you know, David Koresh or, or a cult leader who might just say, listen, here's what I'm going to tell everyone to do. Just because one person thinks something is the case doesn't make that right. And so the community there can provide somewhat of a gut check, but, but communities are wrong sometimes too. And as you say, it may take 10 or 20 or a hundred years for, you know, the, the judgment of history to, to prove you right. And Martin Luther King Jr. is a good example. And as is uh, Hugh Thompson from the My Lai Massacre, neither mm-hmm. one of those gentlemen were popular dudes in the day. <laughs> <laughs> right? They were not popular. Do you want to be right or do you want to be popular? Professor Pauline right. shanks Kern, thank you for uh, talking to us about what I would think on a surface is a very straightforward, very easy thing, obey or not obey. But clearly you're breaking out the fact that this is a lot more complicated. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.